everyone, and welcome back to the Time Shifters podcast. This is your host, Christopher Page, once again in studio with Matt. Welcome back. How have you been? I've been good. How about you? Excellent. Uh, I tell you what, I'm looking forward to this uh, discussion today. I don't think we could have picked two better movies to kind of highlight the differences, but you know, the, kind of the uh, both ends of the spectrum of time travel film. Yeah. <laughs> or certainly in the science of time travel. Uh, before we get into that, we don't have any uh, feedback or anything today. Not really. We do have some stuff coming up and uh, some things we want to talk about. If you do have any feedback for the show, certainly send them to us, uh, either through our Facebook page or group and through our email at timeshifterspodcast at gmail.com. And also, Matt reminded me, and we'll mention this again at the end of the show, that we do have Twitter accounts. <laughs> and if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, you can find us uh, at timeshifterspod. And what is yours again, Matt? At Movies at the Mat. Movies at the Mat. There you go. So you can look for us on Twitter and follow us there. All right. Yeah, I didn't think we were going to have any news or anything to really talk about. Not much has been going on. And then, then like, literally the day before we record, <laughs> there's two news articles that I thought were kind of, kind of interesting, kind of important. The first one will start with kind of what I think might be a little shorter. And I wanted to bring up because the Fantastic Four was one of the books that I read when I was a kid. I, I didn't read a lot of comics regularly, but the few that I did read off and on was something like Fantastic Four. used to watch the cartoons. I've always a Fantastic Four fan. So you understand my disappointment in the films that have come, <laughs> come from Fox on the Fantastic Four front. And um, just recently on an interview with uh, comicbook.com, uh, the executive producer, uh, Simon Kinberg, was uh, was talking with them. He was, I guess, the one promoting uh, Logan, the upcoming uh, Wolverine movie, Logan. And he, uh, he has a, a quote. He says, on Fantastic Four, the most recent one, we love that cast. Obviously, the movie wasn't what we wanted it to be, and it wasn't received the way we wanted it to be. Uh, he said, we would love to make another Fantastic Four movie. We feel like there's a great Fantastic Four movie to be made. I think it would... Uh, hew closer to the tone of the original, the source material, the comics, but we want to make that movie. So yeah, so Fox is going to hang on to the Fantastic Four movie rights for a little while longer in hopes of once of trying this again. My question, I, and maybe we touched on this a little bit when we talked superheroes back on like episode what, one or whatever it was, yep. but why is Fantastic Four so hard? Why can't Fox do Fox for those who don't know, hold the rights to several Marvel uh, uh, properties, yeah. including the X-Men, which have done, they've done great films with the X-Men, yep. I think, at least uh, certainly in the most recent uh, iterations. So in all the related properties, so you got Wolverine and Logan, everyone loves, you know, well, some of those films kind of, it's a hit or miss, I guess, with some of the Wolverine stories. And also Spider-Man, which is again, you no, know, that's you can, Sony. Is that Sony? Sony oh, okay. Sony. My mistake. What is it about Fantastic Four? Why can they not do a Fantastic Four? Is it the property itself that just makes it hard to translate? Or is the, do they just keep putting the wrong people on it? I think they... If you look at what they did with the first X-Men movie, they have tried to repeat that with Fantastic Four. And they did the first... The, 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 the reboot I mean, X-Men or the... Kind of all of them. Okay. Because they, they took the X-Men... Because the X-Men has this whole idea of... You know, it, it's it's a metaphor for racism. You know, you've got the mutants, and they're just trying to find their way in the rest of society, and the rest of society hates them. 
And so it goes back and forth. So you can take that subject matter and give it a serious tone because those X-Men movies didn't really embrace the look and the tone of the comic books. Right. Wolverine's never worn the bright yellow outfit. Yeah, the yellow and blue spandex. Yeah, right. it's, it's always been the, the black, sleek, mm-hmm. you know, tactical look. They tried to apply that to the Fantastic Four, and it you know in the in the first two movies they they tried to embrace the look of the comic books and the first two movies were okay yeah the first one was more okay the, the second one was a mess the first one was all right it's watchable mm-hmm. but it didn't get into the idea of family because that's the heart of the Fantastic Four that this is a family they are the first family of comic books and that's what really like separates them from everyone else so they have not embraced that idea they also haven't embraced the idea that dr doom is not some mad scientist he's what he does is closer to magic than science and no one they they don't dive into the that complex character they're just sort of like ah he's just some science guy that way everyone can keep up and follow it i think if you embraced what the character really is you'd have people go this is different but maybe that's something they can do now now that actual marvel studios has done their doctor strange and they got they've introduced doctor strange into their side of the universe so maybe now that they maybe they think people are a little bit more open to the idea of our superheroes can be magical or our supervillains can be magical uh, certainly uh, with all the avengers films and the uh, they're building up with the infinity stones and mm-hmm. and everything so maybe yes and maybe fox can finally go okay fine yes he Dells and magic, and he's he's their big villain. That might actually work. Maybe that's something that they can work for him, and maybe that's a little bit of what they're talking about when they're talking about keeping in more in tone with the original, with the source material. Yeah, and a while, I think when because I was really excited about this for this the latest Fantastic yeah. Four movie because um, Josh Trank being the director, I'm a fan of his. I really liked uh, his movie Chronicle. And when mm-hmm. I heard he was directing this, I was I was all about it. I was just ready to to watch the heck out of it. And Chronicle then, was the sorry to interrupt. Chronicle okay. was the one that was like the um, the not the found footage, but the first person footage with the kids that discover they yeah. have superpowers. Okay, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And you know what was good about that movie is it was even though they were discovering their telekinetic and they have these powers, it was still grounded. The mm-hmm. issues they were dealing with were just regular high school kid issues, and it never really pulled away from that fact so i'm ready for the fantastic four movie and then i don't even think it was a month i think it was three weeks before the movie was set to come out all of these articles start coming out about problems between josh trank and fox Mm -hmm. and how there have been creative differences and how there were really bad reshoots and all i can think of this benefits nobody (laughs) like this is a mess and it, it wasn't one or two; it was dozens. That's all I kept reading, and then I didn't go see it. Right. And then every review came back. Every person I know who saw it said, "Don't see it. It it's terrible." And I still haven't seen it. I don't know if I would go so far as saying it was terrible. It was kind of one of these things where I didn't mind a lot of what they did. I didn't mind the younger cast. I didn't mind the story. I didn't mind the new origin. Um, I thought it was miscast. My big problem was with actu- with the actual cast. Okay. Yeah, I just 
every one of them, I was like, man, that, that's just not who I, I – it's one of those things where I don't know who I would have picked, but I'm watching these people do the roles, and I'm thinking, that's not who I would have picked. You know, who did they say no to? <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, I know all four of those actors. I've seen them in various things, and I like all four of them. I like mm-hmm. Miles My, Teller. I like Michael B. Jordan. Um, Jamie Bell – and I can't remember her name, but I've seen her in House of Cards and a few other things. She's phenomenal. When I saw the four of them, I was like, this is a great cast. I'm on board. And the the younger aspect of it kind of makes sense to me. Because I think when we look at superheroes, we think of them well into their career. Right. When most people pick up a comic, no one's starting at the first one. No one's starting right. at the origin. So you kind of have to have that younger cast, especially if you want to franchise it. Because eventually, 10 years down the road, We'll have that adult-looking Reed Richards with the silver in his hair and Mm -hmm. things like that. So we kind of have to start them off younger. We can't start them at, you know, because every comic book looks like somebody was drawn at the age of 40. Right. And if you start with that, you only got a few movies out of them before it's just (laughs) like, ooh, they're just walking up with the cane to do their their fight scene. Yeah, you can't have your superheroes opening up their mail from the AARP. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, That actually is a great segue into a character which we kind of – did you know our com- comic book readers of of the past did get to see his origin and got to see him evolve and age, and that is that they have announced that um, this is on the DC side. Warner Brothers has announced they are going forward with a uh, Nightwing film. Uh, Nightwing is uh, Dick Grayson, who was the original Robin, yep. who uh, was literally ab- allowed to age out of his uh, his Robin role, his sidekick role and go on his own and strike out as his own superhero. And it's a character that I didn't realize, that maybe I didn't realize was quite as important in the DC universe as he is. Um, I remember when his comics first started, uh, when the, they introduced Nightwing um, 80s, I think, I think it, was. it was. 70s or 80s. Right. Which is a big deal considering he started as Robin. In 1940, 40, yeah. <laughs> so he was he was one character for 50 years, and all of a sudden they're going to change him, <laughs> right? Well, they, they actually like like I was saying, they did allow him to age, you yeah. Know, and they realized that okay, we've allowed him to become this young man. He's not going to want to be under the shadow of Batman all the time, yeah. Especially with the things where they dealt with uh, uh, Nightfall all through that comic, and yeah. you know and. Batman's trying to find someone to take the mantle, and it's not Robin. And yeah, <laughs> it's like, well, so you know, there was some, I guess, some uh, kind of sour milk. <laughs> yeah. Well, Chris McKay. The news is what Chris McKay, who directed the Lego Batman movie for Warner Brothers, is apparently kind of the uh, at the at the top spot for directing this film, and they're looking at uh, Bill De Debuke, uh, who wrote The Accountant, uh, to write the film. Uh, So, now that right there was something that, uh, you know, when I posted this article on our Facebook group, uh, a friend of mine, Thomas Briner, who I knew was a Nightwing fan, he started buying the comics as soon as there was Nightwing comics to buy and everything. Uh, I mentioned him on it because I knew he was a fan. And uh, I'll just read you what he wrote here because I thought it was really good. He said he'd be thrilled to see a Nightwing movie. The character is a rich history and the distinction of being allowed to age among the ageless and grow as a person. Is the closest thing to what it, to a what if a real person became a superhero and still had to live a real life? My concern lies with the director. Lego Batman was fun to see, but not a great story, and his treatment of Dick Grayson was not flattering or in line with the canonical material. 
Granted, that was animation for kids, and this would be live action for adults, but hard not to think that, that wouldn't flavor the outcome. I'd honestly like to see the story stand alone from the DC Extended Universe, since that really hasn't had a strong or coherent start. Yeah, I'm on board with that thinking. That's why I'm not really excited for a Nightwing movie, because everything he just said, you probably wouldn't get, mm -hmm. unless a Nightwing movie, like the first half, started with him as Robin. Right. Which would mean the first half would have to all be flashback. Mm-hmm. But I, I think you have a more powerful character if, you know, because the way they're doing the DC movies is Batman's been Batman for like 20 years. And he's gone through at least two Robins. And so that means everything that he's gone through with Dick Grayson happened a while ago. And Dick Grayson's been, maybe this will be his first night as Nightwing. Or maybe he's been Nightwing for a little bit. Mm -hmm. We don't know yet. But either way, we don't see him grow up as Robin. I think you need at least two movies for Dick Grayson to be Robin to appreciate becoming Nightwing, because the whole idea of Nightwing and the, I don't I, I don't know because he becomes Nightwing after he gets fired from being Robin, right? And one of my favorite versions is he goes to Metropolis to find Clark. He knows Clark is Superman. He needs advice mm -hmm. on what to do with his life, and Clark says to him, "Because you thought you were going to become Batman one day, didn't you?" And then Dick Grayson goes, I, I've never told anyone that before, but yeah. yeah. So Clark sh tells him about this vigilante that lived on Krypton. No one knew who he was, but he used science and te technology to help people on Krypton. He became this urban myth, and he was known as the Nightwing. And that's oh, where Dick Grayson oh. got the idea to name himself Nightwing. And so it's he becomes this interesting hybrid of Batman and Superman in that... He still works in shadow, and he still intimidates people, and he takes all the training from Batman, but he's a lot more hopeful and optimistic like Superman is. Mm -hmm. And Dick Grayson, over like the last 20-some-odd years, has become the center of the DC Universe, whether people know it or not. He, he's the first Robin, trained by Batman, friends with Superman. His best friend is the Flash, Wally West. <laughs> he has led the Teen Titans, mm -hmm. the Titans. He's been Batman. He's led the Justice League. He, I think he's worked with the Outsiders. Um, he, he's been part of almost every team you can think of. He has worked alongside of almost every hero you can think of. Even Batman and Superman haven't worked alongside of half of these people. And when they were talking about, like, a few years ago that they might kill off Dick Grayson, I remember thinking, how can you do that? <laughs> he has connections to everybody. The funeral would be huge. You would need mm -hmm. ten people to draw those, those, those pictures <laughs> of everyone showing up to Dick Grayson's funeral. It's every superhero you can think of in, in D.C. I don't have a, the, the knowledge of the character as, as you do and a lot of other people do, but one of the things I take from what I do know is that it's that tension between uh, Dick Grayson and Bruce Wayne that kind of evolves the character. Yeah. And if you don't have that, I don't know if you have the character. It's just another guy in tights right. fighting crime. Right. And it's like, so, yeah, unless you spend the entire first bit of that film with him as Robin going, you know, butting heads with, with Ben Affleck Batman or right. someone— and then in the last 
20 minutes, that's it, I quit, I'm going to be Nightwing. <laughs> right. It, I don't think it'll have the it same impact. It doesn't work. Yeah. I think if you grow the character slowly over a couple of movies and then he becomes Nightwing, I think you have a much more powerful story. It sounds to me like you just want to jump in to Nightwing, but you lose everything that makes Nightwing special. I think DC's just having a hard time. They feel like they have to play catch-up to yeah. some of the Marvel Universe movies. The Marvel has done so well in introducing their characters and effectively rebooting their franchises, starting out with this younger cast, and now, you know, 10 years down the road, they're still making the movies with the same cast, and yeah. they're allowing these characters to age, and they are letting the story, you know, uh, show that and show these characters as they're aging. And I think DC just sort of feels like they have to they have to play catch up and they have to be just like them. And it's like, yeah, but you're losing everything that right. <laughs> that they've, that they've done. You can't jump in at the end and uh, it's like a like a Broadway play or something. You can't be the person in the wings and then suddenly jump out at the last minute and sing a high note and expect the standing ovation to be for you. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> they're they're sacrificing storytelling for plot. Mm -hmm. And it's it's kind of unfortunate. And visually, I love what they're doing. I like the the look and the design of their movies. Yeah. Um. I I really like some of the casting decisions, but it's it's just not cohesive right now for me. It's just sort of hey, isn't this a good idea? It's like that would be a good idea in ten years. Can we build to it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like exactly. we're gonna do Suicide Squad as our third movie. Really? That should be your twelfth movie. <laughs> Yeah, I I think they're they're looking at the Avengers and then completely skipping the fact that all the Avengers had a lot of their own adventures and their own films. Mm -hmm. We got to know who they were, we saw how they came to be, and then we saw how they got together. Yeah, and they're just sort of uh, putting DC is just putting the whole Justice League idea and everything and the rest of their universe on the fast track and skipping everything that actually made the Avengers franchise what it is. Right. Uh, I was also a little disturbed when they said that this is going to be, you know, part of the uh, the growing extended universe to go along with uh, a film. This is another thing they're working on. Gotham City Sirens is the, yeah. the working title, uh, which will focus on the female villains of the universe, including uh, Margot Robbie's Harley Quinn. I can only assume, too, that this would also introduce us to Poison Ivy and yet another Catwoman. Yep. Um, again, it's a good idea, but I, mean, it though? It, I think it's a good idea after you've done like 15 movies, Yeah, you know, uh, you can, ex you just, you grow the universe after you've started it. And obviously they haven't said when it will come out or, you know, I mean, cause it, it might not be for a while. It's just, they're a little quick to just say, Hey, we're going to do this too. Mm -hmm. Cause they announced like. I feel like it was 20 years ago that they announced that The Rock is going to play Black Adam, but I still am not sure when that Shazam movie is supposed to come out. And it's like, right. why is he attached to something so far down the road? Why is this being announced so far down the road? So the thing with the DC movies is, for me, I feel they can still make it work. If the next few movies are good, it can save those other movies. Mm -hmm. if, if the idea of hope is brought back in, it, it would make the dark tone of the other movies make sense. So in a big picture sort of way, they've still got a shot at this. But individually, I'm just sort of like, I don't know. I think back to the uh, 90s uh, animated series, the Batman animated series, uh, and especially regards to this, uh, you know, the, the Gotham City siren idea. 
they did do a episode which was like a you know girls' night out sort of thing where they yeah. had Harley, Poison Ivy, and um, maybe it was just Harley and Poison Ivy. There was I thought it was another one too. They they had Harley. That that's where that team up started. Right, Harley yeah. and Poison. But Ivy. the point is though that wasn't the premiere of that of that series. You know right. that was like third season or something. Exactly. after those characters had been in and out of the universe right. several times. Wouldn't it be fun to see these people right. work together? Right, and that's what I mean by you can do that as a live action movie. Down the road. Yeah. Announcing yeah. it now doesn't make a lot of sense. It's like, okay, these characters are going to get together. Well, we haven't even seen two of them yet. Right. And we don't even know how two of them came to be. So right. now it's our DR. So unless you actually work them into another a preview, a film that we you haven't announced yet yeah. or have their own vehicle, we don't know who Poison Ivy is. So right. now we got to waste Gotham City Sirens. We're going to have to waste 30, 40 minutes of that film. Discovering Poison Ivy, right, and another thirty, forty minutes uh, discovering Catwoman, right, just so you can get them to get, get together for like the last forty minutes, right. And, and that's that was kind of the issue I had with Suicide Squad. It did the exact same thing. It it had these. It tried to tighten up explaining who these characters were, and what you lost out on was caring about them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's telling you these quirks about them and these things going on. And at the end, I'm like, well, I learned quite a bit about two of them, but the other five are still a mystery to me, and they were just sort of stand-ins. They're fodder, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it did, you know. But if you built up, like, if you took each of those villains. And just had them be the villain of a different movie. And you see, I always thought it would be fun that if, like, DC did their individual superhero movies with the main, the hero being the, the main of that movie. And at the end, you kind of mock but also playfully uh, redo that whole thing in the Marvel movies where... Samuel Jackson's Nick Fury shows Mm -hmm. up and says, I want to bring you into the Avengers. Instead, you have Amanda Waller go, I'm taking this one. I'm taking that one. They're coming (laughs) for special Task Task Force X. That would be great. And then 10 movies down the line, you see, like, oh, yeah, they were at, you know, Captain Boomerang. He was in the Flash movie. We saw Harley Quinn in a Batman movie, and now they're all being forced to do something else. I don't, I don't envy DC because I do think that they were maybe caught a little off guard by how popular the Marvel films became, and I doubt anyone would ex- would have had expected when that first Iron Man film, the first Captain America film, came out that what ten, fifteen years later we'd still be watching superhero films. Yeah. You know, I, I really, well, not, I honestly thought that would have petered out. Yeah, um, there are people who are saying it will that were on like year seven of ten. I think it's got to. Well, the thing is, I feel the superhero movie has like completely, well, not completely, but almost completely replaced the action movie. You know, every yeah. time another action movie comes out, it doesn't do that well. Like the last Jason Bourne movie came out, didn't do that well. Instead, we go to the superhero movie to get our action fix. Right. And honestly, even though the action films that aren't superheroes, the way they act, they do almost superhero heroic feats. Yeah. So it's, yeah. And so you'd said, well, why did I watch this? I can just go watch the next. Yeah, go watch. I'll wait for the next next cape. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it'll be interesting to see what comes about. And, um. We'll you know we'll keep our ears to the rail for any further news on it and any other you know uh, announcements. So we've got Justice League coming up here 
this year comes out this year, doesn't it? Wonder Woman, then Justice League. That's I'll, right. I'll see them, but because I'm a fan, I want them to do well. I want to enjoy these. Yeah, exactly. It just, it just hasn't yeah, they hit are, me yet. They are a group of superheroes, a, char- a group of characters that I like right. the idea of. Exactly. So you want them to do well. Yeah. That's, that's my thing with Fantastic Four, too. Right. I want them to do well. Exactly. It's like I keep getting disappointed. Right. <laughs> we shall see. All right, with that being all said and done, we're going to take a short break here and play a promo for another wonderful podcast that I hope you go check out. And when we come back, we're actually going to really change gears here and talk about 1979's film Time After Time. Hey, comic book fans, I'm Joe Stuber, producer and host of Comic Book Central, where each and every week I welcome a legendary talent to the Comic Book Central lair to talk about bringing comic books to life. Greetings, true believers. This is Stan Lee. When do you think the Academy is going to wise up and create a special Oscar category for best cameo? I don't know. They're just asleep on their feet. Maybe your show, maybe this interview will be the turning point. Hi, this is Jamie Alexander, the Asgardian warrior Sif from Thor. I went to Marvel. They said, hey, sit down. We want to talk to you about this part. So what happened was I had a knife in my purse. I set the purse on the chair and it fell off and the knife fell out. And then they were like, oh, God, you really are Lady Sif. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the one, the only, William Shatner. There's all these rumors out there that you're going to be in the next Star Trek film. Well, I'd like to be in it. You know, I don't want to be a gratuitous character. Like scrubbing me, the uh, windows on the things. Enterprise or something? There's a guy on the Chris wing. Pine. There's a guy on the wing. Chris Pine says there's a guy on the wing. Catch the very latest episodes at the website, comicbookcentral.net. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, like it on Facebook, follow it on Twitter, And be sure to join me each and every week for Comic Book Central. This is John Reese davis Hi, everyone. This is Summer Glau. Hi, this is Trisha Helfer, number six from Battlestar Galactica. Hey, this is Dean Cain, Superman from Lois and Clark, and you're listening to Comic Book Central. Where comic books come to life. Excelsior. Thanks for sticking with us. Yep. Time after time, we're going to continue some time travel talk. This will kind of end our time travel discussion for now, I think. We decided we watch Time After Time, 1979, directed by Nicholas Meyer. Started Malcolm McDowell, David Warner, and what's your name? Mary Stern Steenberger. Excuse me, Steenbergen. 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 That's a heck of a name. Anyway. (laughs) Um, who apparently has a thing for time travels? Because time travelers. Back to the Future Three. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Matt, I don't think we could have picked two better films to kind of highlight the um, the differences in the types of time travel stories that there are. Certainly within the technology of the time travel. Primer was so okay. If you do this, then this happens, and if you do this, and we this is how we did, and this is how the machine works, and it was very precise and very exact. Time after time. Oh, yeah, it's electric, and if you turn left, you go forward, and turn right, you go back. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was, that, was, that was pretty much it. Right, <laughs> and you've got Primer that's dealing with all of the math and the science and, and the physics, but at the end of the day, they just step inside a prop, 
and then step outside a prop and said, that was time travel. Uh-huh. And you've got this other movie that does all the lights and the sparkles and the, right. the freeze frame and two and, completely different looks for what time travel is. And two very different stories where Primer was time travel was very much a part of the story. Yes. I mean, it was integral to the story. This was really just an adventure film. It happened to weave in some time travel. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. So, I mean, two really great uh, you know, opposite ends of the spectrum kind of thing films. So, I think it worked out really well. Now, this is probably the first time you'd seen this film. Yes. I saw it ages ago. It's the mm-hmm. first time I've watched it in a long time. Um, didn't remember a lot of it. And there was a <laughs> lot that I didn't realize was that movie kind of thing. I was like, oh, that, that, yeah, I remember this scene. This scene looked really familiar, but I didn't connect it to the film. Uh, what are your over, what were your overall impressions? Was it in, was at least enjoyable? Do you enjoy watching it? Did you like it? So the when it was explained to me, the premise yes. of H.G. Wells invents a time machine, mm-hmm. and then his friend, who he doesn't know is Jack the Ripper, gets hold of the time machine, travels into the future, and he has to then time travel after him to stop him. It sounds like the worst premise. <laughs> You could come up with, like, I guess only in the 70s could you pitch that premise yeah. and get greenlit. <laughs> um, but it was really good. It was, <laughs> it was so fun, much it? fun. Because I, I sat there going like, okay, <laughs> this sounds like a dumb idea. And it was so much fun. A lot of it was the actors. Mm-hmm. Great chemistry. They had a lot of fun with this role. Um and this story, and even though, you know, it was, like, serious, dramatic scenes, you could see that they were just sort of, like, <laughs> about it, too. <laughs> and were just kind of goofing off with it while still putting a lot of emotion into it. What did you think? I know you're a big Malcolm McDowell fan. It- <laughs> this was a role that, you know, honestly, I completely different from anything else I've ever seen him in. Yeah. Um, I mean... Clockwork Orange, of course, I, I love him in that, where he's terrifying but still charming. Yes. And then and most of everything else I've seen him in, he's some kind of villain or, or sketchy character or someone you don't fully trust. In this, you just want to give him a hug. Yeah. He is so nice and he's endearing and he just has this hopeful outlook for everybody. He wants to see the good in everybody. And even though he has to go track down his friend, who he knows is a serial killer, he doesn't really know how he's going to do that because right. he knows he can't overpower him. He knows no one's going to believe him. He's just going with good intentions. I described him as being a reactionary character versus his the usual Malcolm McDowell, right. which is the, a character that drives the plot of whatever uh, film or, or television show that he finds himself in. Here he's just literally reacting to the things that are going on around him. He's yeah. just kind of walking through it, trying to do the best he can. That, that was a... Like I said, it was a real nice departure for me for Malcolm McDowell. Yeah, uh, I love the part where he's just going from bank to bank. Yeah. Trying to, because he fi- figures, oh, if I exchanged money, He'll need he to would have exchanged money. And so he's just traveling around. you seeing how tired he's getting. He's yes. going in. It was a really fun montage. And that's one of those scenes where I'm like, they're kind of having a goofy time with mm-hmm. this. Yeah, well, especially when he finally, when you see, and you see those light, his eyes light up. Yeah. He's like, oh, of course, the Bank of London. Right. <laughs> <laughs> where else would Jack or uh, Stevenson, I think yeah. was the character's name. And it, it's just little scenes like that that kept this this sci-fi drama fun. Speaking of that, you know, he has to he's exchanging his uh, he's got these British pounds 
and there are British notes, and he has to exchange them for you know U.S. dollars so he can get by. Uh, outside of that, you mentioned that, but how did you think they handled the sort of uh, the man out of time for this film? So they well, they handled it two different ways. They handled it with. Um, this, with the Jack the Ripper character and they handled it with Malcolm McDowell's character and I thought it was really clever that you have um, H.G. Wells who thinks in three generations humanity is going to reach utopia mm-hmm. because of the science and the technology and there won't be disease, there won't be war and the first thing he sees is he turns on the TV and he sees how terrible the world is, it hasn't changed at all, it's just there's just more destruction uh-huh. and more death and it it kind of overwhelms him. Like I almost thought he was going to pass out. That not only was he wrong, he was so wrong. Mm-hmm. And on the flip side, you have Jack the Ripper being like, "I feel like I'm more at home than I've ever been." <laughs> he embraces like, everything. Yeah, he goes from you know because Jack the Ripper historically killed like one woman a week, and this he's killing them every night because uh-huh. I can get away with it, and because there's so much crime that they'll be overwhelmed with with dealing with everything, and I won't have a problem, and you know I don't have to go seek out the prostitute. I can call him to my room. <laughs> <laughs> this is better. He adjusted like there was no issue, mm-hmm. and I thought that was really clever and creative because a monster can blend in wherever he yeah. goes. And it, that that's essentially the essence of that character. Is he's a monster. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was incredibly creative. Yeah, whereas the H.G. Wells character is trying very hard to hold on to his ideals that he, yeah. or his, his vision of what he thought the future should be, and he's hanging on to that, so it's a little harder for him to sort of blend in with the rest of society. I mean, he never bothers to change out of his late uh, you know, 1890s, outfit yeah <laughs> yeah he wears it the whole time he does. it's like you've been here a week maybe do your laundry mm-hmm. um i did like that while everything in malcolm mcdowell plays it really well where everything is very strange and amazing you know you get these dice uh, uh, skyscrapers and you've got you know the the automobiles buzzing around and everything and he takes it all with a little bit of of, of wonder but it's sort of being i guess in this you know the man of science he takes it in with sort of admiration and wonder, but it's not the, ah, I'm scared of the car. It, 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 I've seen it done where you know, he's like scared to touch anything or go anywhere kind of yeah, because it's all so crazy. And this one, he's like, oh, wow, they have cars that move by themselves. And that's, you know. Yeah, and he and he's watching um, Mary Steenberger's character. Amy, yeah. Yeah, Amy. We'll call her Amy. We'll call her Amy. <laughs> Shorter name. He's watching Amy drive the car, and he's lo- teaching himself how to drive the mm-hmm. car by watching her. And then when it's his turn to drive the car, he's just like, I got it. And he's terrible <laughs> at it, but he's doing it. Yes. You kind of hit on uh, one of my favorite scenes in this film. It's just remembered the line. The line isn't played quite the way I remembered it in my head. And it actually kind of blends into the entire scene. And you mentioned it is... When um, H.G. Wells finally does very smartly uh, track down uh, Stevenson. His, Stevenson, he finds him at the at the hotel, mm-hmm. and Stevenson gets him in there, and you know, H.G. is telling him like, "No, you have to come back. We don't belong here." And that's when Stevenson's like, hey, "Come here and sit down." And he turns on the TV. Look, Palestine terrorists carried out their threat and began shooting the first five of 106 Israeli schoolchildren held hostage for 18 days in a sea. You haven't gone forward, Herbert. 
You come back. We've just received word that Mayor Griffin Margolin of Columbus, Ohio was shot. We don't belong here. On the contrary, Herbert. I belong here completely and utterly. I'm home. It's you who do not belong here. You, with your absurd notions of a perfect and harmonious society. It's drivel. The world has caught up with me and surpassed me. Ninety years ago, I was a freak. Today, I'm an amateur. You go back, Herbert. The future isn't what you thought. It's what I am. Yeah. <laughs> I love that scene and I love that line. Yeah, that's a really good line. And it, and it just goes back to the idea of, you know, he embraces every aspect of this. It's not even a different future because it's more of, I guess, for his point of view, being Jack the Ripper, he, you know, Jack the Ripper historically, I mean, I know he wasn't the first known serial killer, but it was the first serial killer that, like, a society got around because he supposedly sent letters to the police and parts of his victims to the police. That's kind of something serial killers love the limelight. They're narcissists. Mm -hmm. They like to read about themselves and hear about themselves. And that was kind of the first known one. And so he comes to this future where he's like, I can do whatever I want. Like the, the stuff I started is everywhere here. So yeah, he looks at himself as an amateur, but you can see He's getting back to pro oh, really quick. Imagine, imagine if he'd come to a time when there was Facebook and Twitter. Exactly. <laughs> I'll just kill somebody and I'll be a trending topic. Uh-huh. I think because getting a little ahead of myself, but it's funny that we picked this movie as well because in a couple of weeks, time after time, the TV show is going to air. <laughs> yeah, which I, I think I remember hearing the name. A new series, time after time, but thinking, no, it couldn't be based on this. And it is. It is. I couldn't <laughs> believe it. And I watched the trailer. Did you happen to watch the trailer? I didn't know because uh, I I just heard about it. I think uh, when we recorded last that they were going to do a, mm-hmm. a, a TV show, and uh, I I didn't I didn't think to seek it out, but uh, I I just think that's really funny. But it, it I'm hoping that the time they t- they travel to now because I think that would be a really interesting thing to I, see. I went to uh, IMDb and I watched the trailer. And everything I see in the trailer is effectively the story that you see here in this film. Okay. Uh, I'm, which I'm assuming is a trailer for the premiere. Uh, unless I, That's what I don't know. I don't know if they're giving us a trailer that stretches out through the 13 episodes. Okay. Or if it's all in the, within the premiere. But it's the same story. that In the trailer, it's the same story. Okay. How they're going to turn that into 13 episodes, I'm not <laughs> sure. Uh, are they going to – I can't imagine that ABC is going to do, oh, yeah, and they'll continue to time travel and chase through time. I doubt they're going to do that. Right. It is definitely – they come to now, and I think they'd probably go to New York rather than San Francisco here. Sure. Um, it's the impression I got. It would definitely look very New York. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess we'll see. I'm kind of curious now. After having watched this film again, I'm really curious to actually – watch the series and see what they do with it and how they can manage it, how how they can do it and not just turn into and the first episodes of the time after time 
time travel bit, and then the rest is just, I don't know. Chasing uh, him around. Chasing him just around New missing York. him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, well, how long did The Fugitive go on for? I mean, you, no, you can you. make fugitive. it work. That's, that's the, the show I was trying to think of. Yeah, when you, I... you can make it work. You can stretch it out. I mean, how many times did they break out of prison in prison break, you know, and that's even <laughs> coming back. So I, I think it can work. Um, I, I, I will probably check it out, like, after, it, you know, it, it finishes airing, and I'll just watch it in one, yeah, sure. one time or something. But, uh, yeah, to go back to the movie, um, that cast of, of essentially just three people um, – that's what really made the movie enjoyable for me is they each had their scenes together and they each had very different scenes together. And the scene I really like is um, when Stevenson goes back to the Bank of London mm. to exchange oh, some yeah, more yeah. money. Mm-hmm. And Amy, she knows who he is. She's she's come to believe H.G. Wells at this point that he's a time traveler and this is Jack the Ripper and he's a dangerous man. Mm-hmm. And she sees him, and then Stevenson realizes, wait, you told me what hotel to go to. He found me at that hotel. Mm -hmm. It must be you. And he goes from semi-charming to terrifying. Very dark instantly. Yeah. And he doesn't abduct her. He doesn't do any of that. He leaves, and it's this idea of like, okay, the shark's out there, Uh and it's coming for you. Uh That's one of the things that I think might surprise people. Like you were saying, when you hear the premise of it, you don't expect it. It's surprisingly a very intelligent story. Yeah. Um, The writing's very intelligent. There's no, oh, yeah, that would happen kind of thing. (laughs) There really isn't. Uh, not that I, not, nothing that I, that really stood out. There's that scene right there where he's like, oh, they're talking, and she is just making small talk, trying to stall him. Yeah. And he's like, oh, and did the hotel work out? Oh, yeah. That, oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was a great moment. Right. It was just natural conversation, yes. and he had that epiphany. Yes, and I do like the way he just gets very dark, very quiet. I think I'll take my business elsewhere. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And and then they do they do a really good job with that of just just kind of you could argue like throwaway scenes, but it adds to the character like the scene where she takes H.G. Wells and they're in the revolving restaurant mm-hmm. and he, she's just sort of she doesn't realize it, but she's catching him up on like the last 80 years worth of history. Yeah. And she's telling him about like uh, women's suffrage and the sexual revolution. And he's just sort of like. Wow. <laughs> I do like uh, – he mentions early on in the in the film some of the articles he's writing for the newspaper, and he mentions it again to his conversation with Amy. He's like, oh, and, yeah, so m- many of my last articles were on free love. <laughs> and she's like, oh, free love. Why well, I haven't heard that since eighth grade. Oh. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was ahead of my time, and it's that idea he's the amateur too. And now he's kind of behind the times. Right. <laughs> And they both experience the same thing in two very different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, did, did the director write it, Nicholas Meyer? He did not write it. A friend okay. of his wrote it was uh, based on an unpublished novel that a friend of his was working on. Okay. And apparently he, he shared some of the first pages with uh, Nicholas Meyer. And Nicholas Meyer just loved it. And he optioned it, like, immediately. He, mm-hmm. he got the guy to, you know, uh, agree to the, let him uh, make the film. And that's that's how it came to be. So you keep seeing things, you know, uh, like the series. I keep saying based on the movie and the novel. Well, okay, the novel actually wasn't really even published when they made the movie. The novel wasn't even finished in 1979 when Nicholas Meyer optioned the rights to 
to do the film. So one of the first times in history where the movie came before the book. Yes. <laughs> the book is better. Well, we don't know yet. Uh, speaking of Nicholas Meyer the, and uh, everybody else, I think it's so funny how um, the, the the Star Trek connections of this film yeah. are even more. The, Nicholas Meyer directed two Star Trek films. Malcolm McDowell starred in a Star Trek film. David Warner starred in a Star Trek film. This is sort of this <laughs> close circle that I didn't even realize existed yeah. until I didn't I realize it was it. that connected until right. I, I didn't realize the uh, the director. I didn't. I didn't remember and I didn't look it up and I'm sitting there watching the credits like, oh, <laughs> right. Cause yeah, I did a little reading on him and I was like, and what people said is not only did he go on to direct a bunch of things with Star Trek, but some of the better movies is what, yes. oh. to my understanding. Yeah. Uh, two of the best movies directed. And then he wrote one that is one of the more popular films. He did again, an, another time travel story. He yeah. did the, he did the voyage home where the enterprise crew travels back to modern day, San Francisco. Okay. So it, I guess he likes that. He likes that. <laughs> yes. The San Francisco thing. I didn't even catch until I think until I just, just now, <laughs> until I just said it like, Oh, it's San Francisco again. So since this was like a rewatch, but with a lot of time in between, how does it hold up for you? I, I agree with you. It's just, it's a fun film. I, it's kind of one of those movies where I, I didn't realize it was as long as it was. It's almost a two-hour-long film, which yeah. surprised me for 1979. Um, I kind of wish it were shorter because I think I'd probably watch it more. It yeah. was like one of those 90-minute you could bust through real quick. It's that extra 40 minutes or so. That you're, you're like, oh, it kind of makes it a little hard to squeeze in. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. But no, I think it's a fun film, and they're the like I said the the scenes that I remembered and remembered enjoying, I still enjoyed them. I still thought it was great, mainly because the level of acting, the level of actors that yeah. were involved in the picture. I think you could have easily made this film a lot worse by not having Malcolm McDowell and David Warner, yeah, in, in the two lead roles. And I can't remember who exactly I was reading, but like. All three of them were not the first picks. Yeah, I surprised. Just I was just reading that today through some of the IMDb trivia. Yeah. Take that as you will, but yeah. Uh, I think uh, it was funny because I was thinking it too. Uh, supposedly the first choice for Amy was Sally Fields, mm-hmm. and something about that character. While I was watching the movie, I was like, I'm getting a Sally Fields vibe. You could from- have done that. I think Sally could have probably. I, I think the character of Amy was a, probably a little bit more interchangeable with yeah. other actresses. Yeah, I mean I really liked what she did because she 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 comes off very strong and independent but she's also very vulnerable at times. Um she isn't exactly a damsel in distress cuz he doesn't really save her. She gets away on her own. Yeah. He tries to save Through her luck. Right. Yeah. Because uh, he just needed a hand free to open the door, and that's when she's just like, "I'll shove him out of the way and save myself." Mm-hmm. He H.G. Wells tries to save her like three times and fails three yes. times. Um, but it, it was it was one of those that that ending sequence. It was one of those things for me where I was just sort of like, "Here we go," because they set up pretty much right at the beginning how we're going to defeat the villain. Like, yeah. oh, if you remove this, that's that would the... be bad. And I was just like. Got it. That's yeah. our ending. <laughs> yes. That is probably the, the one weak point to this film. Yeah. Is the it painted itself into a corner. The the, the checkoff gun of the uh of the movie. The, the, <laughs> the little I forget what I went to look up and see what it was that he called it, the vapor lock initiator or whatever yeah. it was. It's it's the most ridiculous because you know, he, he shows his friends this time machine and it's mm-hmm. got 
dozens of bits and bobbles connected to it and glass this and a big this and everything. And what does, oh, and what does this do? That pulls out this little thing from the side, like, really? You right. know, and of course, yeah, that's Why the, isn't that bolted in? <laughs> why, why is that removable? Yeah, the one piece that's integral to maintain, to make sure that the traveler doesn't <laughs> die. <laughs> It's just this thing you can just pull out pull of the right side out. of the machine. Yeah. Well, you know, just in case one of my psychotic friends gets a hold of it, <laughs> I can stop him. And then every time somebody sees that little thing, they have to pull it out. Oh, what's, what's this? that? Like, oh, that's a self-destruct. Yeah, right. I mean, <laughs> and that's what I thought was going to happen. I didn't know the person inside would vaporize. I thought it was going to get pulled out. And we were going to find out that was H.G. Wells' way of saying, I'm sacrificing going home mm. for stopping you. Instead, Stevenson vaporizes in kind of a cool sequence. Yeah. But then I'm sitting there going like, oh, so you get everything. You you stop him. You save her, kind of. And you get to keep your machine. Yes. <laughs> I figured the whole thing would go up in smoke. Yeah, I think there is some line early, I think in the very beginning, that when he explains what it is, he said that that uh, – that without it, the traveler would uh, would go on without the machine, and there's no coming back or something right. like that. So, effectively, I guess you get sent through the time continuum without non-stop. any nonstop, with any chance of ever returning. Um, but yeah, it's just it's it's kind of a, a ridiculous little plot point that. Mm. It's it's hit with it's a really big hammer that hits you very early on, and then they have to remind you of it. <laughs> Halfway through the film, yep. when he just in case you forgot, in case you forgot, when this he sho- is how we're going to end the movie. When he, sho- when he shows the machine to Amy, the first thing she does, oh, what's this? Yeah. <laughs> what? Um, the other thing I really liked, and it's kind of something that Primer did too. Time travel is not a healthy experience. Where he's going through, he's going like going forward almost eighty years or something like that, mm-hmm. and he comes out the other end drenched in sweat can barely stand up and you know everything's like kind of fuzzy like he looks like he's someone who just regained consciousness Mm -hmm. and i really like that and i think that was kind of an idea that's like a bit ahead of its time and because most time travel things don't do that you get in the box or you get in the machine and poof here we are wow that was fun yeah right instead it's like he looks like he's gonna throw up Mm -hmm. and primer did that too if you get out of the box too soon you're gonna need a minute (laughs) (laughs) um but when he showed up Mm mm-hmm to the future, did you notice? Mm-hmm. You did. Okay. I was going to ask you if the okay. the, the, the young the boy. little boy, Corey Feldman, because <laughs> I his voice is very unique. And when I heard "Mommy, Mommy, who's, who's that, that guy?" I was like, "Is that Corey Feldman?" <laughs> very, very young. And and what is I think was credited his first film. Yeah. Yeah, that jumped out to me right away. And then I saw him. I was like, "Yeah, that's like a five-year-old Corey Feldman." Uh-huh. It, it, I have to admit, I didn't. The name didn't click. It was kind of like, "Oh, that kid looked familiar." And then I, the, then the scene was over and it moved on. And so it wasn't until the end when I'm sitting there watching the credits and, oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. that was a trip. I was wondering if you picked that up. If you know, oh, that. I did because uh, I thought like either Stand by Me or The Goonies was his first movie. I had no idea it was some quick scene like, <laughs> in a time travel movie I'd never heard of. The only other thing that I had in my notes here that I wanted to mention about the film is the it was 1979. I thought that as far as the film of the time, it looked pretty good. It actually, yeah. most of the film, I think, it could have easily been a film anytime up through and into, and into the mid 80s. I mean, yeah. it really had that, that the look and feel of it. 
except for when uh, Jack gets his uh, sharp new threads, and that <laughs> promptly grounds it into the late seventies with yeah. his uh, his all denim uh, sport coat and, and pantsuit there uh-huh. or whatever. <laughs> but the rest of the film, I think they did a really nice job of making it well, for lack of a better term, kind of timeless. Yeah, um, and I think that plays to just. Kind of how with what Primer did of just filming outdoors, filming actual buildings. You're not yeah. really making sets. It's just, you know, they actually filmed at a mall and in a I hotel. suppose that's the one thing that does sort of ground it in the time that it is, is that it is San just, Francisco yeah. of the late 70s or right. 80s. Yeah, I think when you deal with a set, you have a hard time of making it look authentic. And, hey, we're just actually outside a bank right now, so mm-hmm. no problem. Yeah. And I, I think the other thing that was fun, it's something that time travel movies do once in a while, and sometimes it's corny and sometimes it's fun. In this case, it was fun of the idea of this all takes place before H.G. Wells goes on to write some of his better work. Right. So he de- has the time travel adventure two years before he writes The Time Machine. Mm-hmm. And, and it, does marry Amy Robbins. Right. She comes <laughs> back, and that's when we find out that's the woman he goes on to marry, even though it's kind of historically muddled, but that's okay. Yes. <laughs> um, but it's it's just funny to me that they uh, they, they pointed that out because, you know, he, he would go on to write novels about, like, free love and, you know, uh, a socialist society. And it's like it's all everything he learned from right. traveling to 79 <laughs> San Francisco. Yeah, I did a little um, refresher of just uh, earlier today just on H.G. Wells trying to see how much of you know what they picked out was true or whatever and and he was indeed married and then you know divorced uh, around this time he yep. did write a lot of papers he did believe in you know socialism and the in the idea of utopia um yeah, unfortunately, you know, I don't. They didn't have a. There wasn't a happy marriage for Amy and HG because he was indeed a big fan of free love and yep. exercised it uh, <laughs> <laughs> as often as he could. Yes, and apparently, I think there was a time he actually wrote that he he felt that you know men should be able to have as many mistresses as as they so choose, but yeah. women shouldn't be right. allowed because you know, come on, they just want to be proper. <laughs> <laughs> so. He was a uh, he was good for uh, women's liberation to a point, <laughs> right? <laughs> so yeah, I, I enjoyed that little. That yeah, I like it. it when they grind it, grind it, where they actually kind of ground the story in the real world. Ground, right. I still can't say it when they ground the story in the real world. Yeah, yeah, the, these events happen. This isn't just some magical uh, time and place, alternate universe. This is this is how it happened. Yeah. And you do have to, in this film, you have to allow certain, you know, oh, this time machine, you know, the, he, the time machine ends up in a museum. And there, there's a placard. And it's like, oh, yeah, it was uncovered in, you know, H.G. Wells' basement. No one has an idea if it worked. Like, really? No one no one tried to mess with it, turn it on? No, right. Really? 80 Maybe they, years. they removed that thing. Yeah, they turned <laughs> that thing off. Yeah, they, no one pulled that thing out. Right. Everyone else pulls it out. No one in 80 years pulled that out. Right. <laughs> and that was the part that I I got a little confused by. I'm like, so did he travel with his machine or did he travel into the future machine? Because when he travels, then that one's gone from the museum. Yeah. My head hurts. It's a little, yeah. That's, like I said, (laughs) Primer was very precise about how time travel worked. This one is very loose. Uh, Um, And then the other part of it is I'm sitting there going, you just told us he won. 
Because if he's back, because I think that would have been interesting if he went forward and then people were like, we don't know who H.G. Wells is. Yeah, he's time lost. He's got to yeah, go back. Right. Oh, that would have been a real interesting. Yeah, he didn't show up in the in the museum and just shows up in the middle of a field somewhere in London if you changed it around and everything. And, yeah, so he's since he's in the future, he's not in the back writing those books, so no one knows who H.G. Wells is. Yeah. That would be interesting. That right. would have been a neat, neat twist on things. I think you've got to go back in order to set history right. Yeah, which you don't even know that exists. Exactly. <laughs> um, and the other part that I, I, it's just them being loose is they don't explain how this time machine travels space. Because when he went to the future, I expected yeah, like him to said, be— it's a little loose. Right. When they showed the museum, I was like, oh, they turned his home— into a museum. Like, no, you're in San Francisco. Why aren't you in London? I don't know. Yeah. Just just go with it. Just go with it. Yeah, that's <laughs> one of the things you just got to go with. Yeah. Yeah, because even he makes a point of, like, setting his clock and thinking, okay, it'll be 11.15 yeah. in, in 80 years. And then, oh, I'm eight hours off. Why? What? Oh, I'm in San Francisco. Even he didn't understand how he did that. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't question it. So you can time travel and potentially end up anywhere in the universe. Apparently. <laughs> You're lucky you didn't end up in the ocean. Well, see, that's that thing that keeps pulling out. Right. See, without that, you know, so, yeah, maybe that's it. He just he just follows uh, to the machine. I Who knows? Yep. Except that you actually see the machine disappear in the 1890s. Right. Or his uh, housekeeper sees it disappear. So, yeah, they a little fast and loose in the time. <laughs> but, like we were saying, that's not the point of the exactly. actual story it's just this the sort of adventure story could right. have easily been a story about just honestly jack and uh uh hg could have just taken separate boats yeah and gone to new york exactly and had the same adventure mm-hmm. and still had and he had to track him down and, and no one believes me that this is the london serial killer <laughs> exactly so you could have told the same story without time travel at all yeah it was more fun with it yes oh yeah absolutely <laughs> absolutely well, I don't have anything else that to. I, I'm trying to think if there's anything else about the film that I wanted to point out. It, uh, you, you hit on most of them. You've, yeah. you've, 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 you've spotted Corey Feldman, so that yes. made me happy. <laughs> uh, one little bit of uh, minutia um, the scene where they're act it's the chase scene on foot. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess they're like running through a mall or something, like an outdoor, half outdoor, half indoor mall. Sure, yeah. Did any of that seem a little off to you? Off in just how slow they were running. Oh, I did read a little bit of trivia yeah. about that, but they were both suffering from ankle injuries. Yeah, um, David Warner had recently broken both, both ankles. his ankles, yeah. so he's like on a light jog. Mm-hmm. Like that's yep. all he could muster. And Malcolm McDowell had like broken one of his like ankles. Sprained. Spra- he was worse than a sprained. sprained ankle. So they both have to do this like real gingerly jog yeah. in their suits too with yeah. nice shoes on and I'm like they're barely passing people <laughs> and then I, I I remember watching that going should they have filmed this <laughs> and then and then there's the part where they're both on like the, the skyway bridges oh, I love that going back and forth yeah which way? one which goes way? left the other goes left it's like well guys there's a lot of space between there's like 200 feet between yeah you. there's like a city block <laughs> right it, it, I don't under like that was so goofy. I I feel that was meant to be comical from start to finish, and like because one of them could just could have ducked and been like, now he won't know which way I'm going. Right, yeah. <laughs> and it was just it felt like something out of Looney Tunes. It was very Looney Tunes. And could have just you could could have just run right and then just waited a few uh, minutes and then shot left. Exactly. <laughs> um, it, yep. It, okay, it, he left. Yeah, Let's go. It was half Looney Tunes, half like Lucy with the. Uh, Who's the 
the Marx brother in oh, the mirror. Like yes. that's what it felt like. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and then when I read that they both were injured, I'm like, that makes sense because this is just yeah, so, so yeah, weird looking. So whenever you see him actually really running from a distance, that's a like a, a double a stunt man. A, a stunt man. And they're probably told slow down because they can't run fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is fun. There is some uh, interesting little bits of trivia. If you go into the IMDb, just the IMDb trivia bit, you can see some neat stuff. Uh, some of the coincidences with the Nicholas. Uh, uh, Nicholas Meyer. Nicholas Meyer. Like, for some reason, I was thinking that Meyer wasn't the last name. Nicholas Meyer. And yeah, the, some of the stuff. Oh, Malcolm McDowell and, uh, and uh, uh, Mary uh, met on this film and married. They were married for like 10 years after this film. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Interesting. They, I, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I didn't know. Um. Yeah, all kinds of little bits of trivia about this film. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that kind of revolves around this film. And it is, strangely enough, you know, other than, you know, the people that really like time travel stories, kind of a forgotten film. Yeah, I'm not really sure. I mean, I never heard of it. That was the thing. Nobody yeah. ever had pointed it out to me. But, yeah, I think no matter when I watched it, I would have enjoyed it. This mm-hmm. is, was just so much fun. Yeah, good. Well, uh, the next time we get together, uh, Matt mentioned something that was. That's that's going to be another film that's coming up, and we thought you know this would actually make a really good uh, opportunity for a whole just general discussion. It's kind of the, the you know the art of the remake. This is actually something that I've talked about before. I enjoy talking about it. I have to admit, maybe my views on it may have altered. I'll say altered slightly than uh, some of my past views on on, on remakes and stuff. But that, that's going to be coming up on uh, the next time we get together and talk. So if you have any thoughts on uh, any upcoming remakes or past remakes or remakes in general, send them to timeshifterspodcast at gmail.com or come on to our Facebook group. You can also tweet us at at timeshifterspod and at movies at the mat. Is that correct? Yep. Okay, I got it. Excellent. I'm going to try to remember to actually mention the whole Twitter thing and maybe actually get on there and tweet more. I don't do a very good job of that. Well, Matt, thank you very much. I am thrilled that you enjoyed this film. I'm glad I – it was one of those films I was a little worried because it's been so long since I watched it. I was like, is this really going to be any good? Yeah. <laughs> it holds up. It holds up. It's a, it's a fun film. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Uh, so that's going to do it. Thanks, Matt. It was great. Anytime. All right. So we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye. <laughs>